I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. Coming up, tomorrow is the winter solstice, so what better time to talk about astronomical events? We look at some of the projects that scientists have proposed for observations with the James Webb Space Telescope and some initial results. And how do people get observing time on a big telescope in space? Dix, neuf, huit, sept, six, cinq, quatre, trois, deux, unité, top. And we have engine start. And liftoff. Décollage, liftoff from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. One year ago, on December 25, 2021, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, JWST, was launched on an Ariane 5 launch vehicle from the European Space Agency's Guiana Space Center in Kourou, French Guiana. Last week, a JWST first anniversary meeting was held at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland, for scientists and engineers to present how the telescope and its suite of instruments are doing and some of the first science results. JWST is not in orbit around the Earth, like the Hubble Space Telescope is, but independently orbits the Sun, one million miles away from Earth, at what is called the second Lagrange point, or L2. The launch and placement into that location was so good that more fuel is available than expected, allowing a possible mission lifetime of perhaps 26 years. The telescope and sun shield deployed properly, and it has completed six months of commissioning with all 17 science instrument modes working. Its science and mission requirements have been met or exceeded. The science performance, pointing, and guiding are better than expected across the board. JWST began normal science operations in July 2022. Many of you have likely seen some of the amazing pictures from the telescope. But what about the science? In this and a future episode of How on Earth, we will explore what projects are being done with the JWST Observatory, what scientific questions they are asking, and some early results. Before we talk about the observations people are doing with the James Webb Space Telescope, we should talk about what kind of instruments are on JWST. There are imaging cameras that take pictures and spectrographs that break the light of the objects being observed into spectra, like rainbows. Each atom or molecule has a unique fingerprint of bright or dark lines in these spectra that help scientists determine the chemistry and even the speed and distance of objects in the near and far universe. I talked to Dr. Naomi Rogerny, 
a planetary science postdoctoral researcher at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center and the University of Maryland to get an overview of the science instruments on JWST. There are four instruments all housed at the back of the mirror. The first one is NearCam or the Near Infrared Camera. That one has been involved in all of the outreach projects that have happened so far because it's the instrument that has the highest spatial resolution on the spacecraft. So that beautiful Carina Nebula picture that came out, that was all uh, near cam. And then you have an instrument called MIRI or the mid-infrared instrument. And that has both a camera and a spectroscopic capabilities as well. Uh, so the mid-infrared is slightly longer wavelengths than the near-infrared instruments. And that means that we are looking at even further back in time galaxies. And also we're looking through the clouds and the dust of nebula and of planetary atmospheres uh, with this instrument. And then you also have NearSpec, the near-infrared spectrograph. That's in the same kind of wavelengths as NearCam, but instead of it just being images, it does spectra, like MIRI does spectra as well. The exciting things about MIRI and NearSpec are that they both have these things called IFUs or integrated field units. And this is a really powerful thing for scientists to use for JWST because what it does is that it takes a image cube instead of just taking a 2D picture. So it takes an image and then every pixel in that image will have a, an amazing spectrum that scientists can use to figure out what something is made of, what temperature it is, and a lot of other characteristics as well. And then you have the final instrument, which is kind of like a two-in-one instrument, which is FGS NIRIS. FGS stands for the Fine Guidance Sensor. FGS is really important because it helps to guide the entire observatory to be able to look at certain targets. So that instrument is always being used to help the other instruments look at the correct thing. And then it's combined with this nearest instrument, which is the near-infrared slitless spectroscopy. And that does just pure spectroscopy. Um, there's a, maybe a little bit of the ability to do some imaging in there, but that's mostly used by people who do exoplanet science, I think. JWST also has a coronagraph on the MIRI instrument. A coronagraph effectively blots out the glare of a bright object so the telescope can see very faint objects near it, like when you hold your hand up to block the sun to see an airplane near it in the sky, or how you see the faint, ghostly corona of the sun when the moon passes in front of the sun during a solar eclipse. A coronagraph is a part in a telescope that creates an artificial eclipse. JWST will use this capability for, among other things, to get spectra and images of planets around distant stars and determine the chemistry of the planet's atmospheres. So, what is Dr. Roe Gurney's favorite capability of JWST? My favorite thing is the IFUs because they're the things that we're most excited about in planetary science because planets like Uranus and Neptune are very difficult to look at from the ground because they're so small and like far away and quite dim and cold. So looking especially in the mid-infrared is extremely difficult from the ground. And even with past space telescopes like the Spitzer Space Telescope, it was much smaller. So 
all we got was just one spectrum from looking at the entire planet. So like a global average of the whole planet in one spectrum. And that's useful, but not as useful as being able to get a picture. And then every pixel in that picture tells you an even more complex story than the Spitzer spectra. How does the capability of the instruments on the James Webb Space Telescope differ from what we had on the Hubble Space Telescope? The JWST is very different from Hubble because um, the, the biggest reason is that it is in a completely different wavelength range. So Hubble mostly looks at visible light, the light that we see with our eyes, uh, whereas the JWST looks in the infrared. So at slightly longer wavelengths as you go past red, um, you become infrared. And instead of being light, you are heat instead. So you still are part of the electromagnetic spectrum, but you feel it as heat. So when an object emits heat, it's emitting infrared. And that's what we're detecting with with the JWST. And it's also extremely useful because where the Hubble Space Telescope will look at something and see all of the dust and, and the gas, because that dust and gas is very cold, it means that just like with looking at somebody in a bush with one of those infrared security cameras, you can actually see the person through the bush with an infrared camera, but the bush is kind of in the way. But because the bush is cold and the person behind it is hot, you can actually see that person with the infrared. That's exactly what we're doing with the JWST, except with the dust and gas of nebula and also galaxies and also the like hazes of planets. You might have heard that One of the capabilities of JWST is that it will see further back in time and more distant in the universe than most other telescopes. But how does it do that? What happens when something is traveling very fast away from us, it will experience something called Doppler shift. It's the same effect as when a car goes past you or a motorcycle goes past you on a road and it goes, like all of the sound waves kind of bunch together as it's coming towards you and spread apart as it's going away. So it it comes out as a different pitch. So that happens with light as well. So when something's traveling extremely fast towards you, all of the electromagnetic waves will bunch up and they'll appear bluer. And when something is moving really fast away from you, they will stretch out and appear redder. And as I said before, if you go to like past red in the electromagnetic spectrum, you end up with infrared. And then the further you can look in infrared, the faster things that you can see in the universe. And because the universe is expanding from the Big Bang, it means that the most distant galaxies are the ones that are traveling the fastest. So the further into the infrared that we can go, the further we can see back in time, essentially. This song we're listening to is Floating in Heaven, written by Graham Goldman, founder of the music group 10CC, and joined by Brian May, guitarist from Queen. It is a song about the James Webb Space Telescope.
with this amazing capability of JWST and all instruments performing so well, you can imagine that scientists around the world are excited about using this telescope for their projects. But how do they do that? How do scientists get time to observe with JWST? To answer that question, I talked to Dr. Christine Chen, Associate Astronomer at the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. James Webb Space Telescope is an observatory that's available to astronomers all over the world. And the projects that are observed on the telescope are selected through a peer review process. So that means that every year, astronomers from all over the world submit their ideas for what they think should be done on the telescope. And then we assemble what's known as the Telescope Allocation Committee that consists of astronomers from the community to review the proposals. Our process is double blind. So that means that the people who write the proposals don't know who's reviewing them and the reviewers don't know who's writing them. We have this double-blind process because we would like to have the most fair evaluation of the proposals that doesn't take into account who's written them and really focuses on the science justification. So essentially, this telescope allocation committee makes recommendations to our director in terms of which projects they think should be executed on the telescope, and they submit a rank-ordered list to our director with recommendations for what they think should be executed. And typically, our director approves the suggestions made by the TAC. So you talk about the double-blind process. Is that relatively new compared to how selections were done in the past on other telescopes? Dual anonymous peer review is a relatively new phenomenon for the astronomical community. It was really pioneered by Space Telescope Science Institute for the review of Hubble Space Telescope proposals. Prior to about 2016, the way that proposals were evaluated was that the members of the committee evaluating the proposals would know who had written the proposals. And oftentimes there would be discussions among the panel about the qualifications of the proposer to carry out the study. There was noticed that there was a systematic bias in the acceptance rate of proposals by men and women with the fraction of successful proposals led by women lower than men by systematically 5% a year. So in any one given year, the difference wasn't very large, but accumulated over 26 years, it was definitely noticeable. And so uh, Space Telescope formed this committee and got recommendations for how to improve the review process. And so one of the things that was suggested was to implement this dual anonymous peer review system, whereby neither the reviewers nor the proposers know who the other is. So that started with HST cycle 26 and has been extremely successful. It has decreased the bias in proposals selected led by male and female PIs so that it's systematically, I think, 1% different. Um, and so we consider this a great success of dual anonymous peer review. We've also noticed that more proposals from younger investigators are submitted and also accepted. Um, and so, for example, you can see that the fraction of successful student PIs is higher for James Webb Space Telescope than Hubble Space Telescope. What happens after someone is awarded time? Do they get money? How does the observation actually happen? 
So you can imagine scheduling a year's worth of observations on a facility like JWST is extremely complex. So there's a number of things that happen once telescope time is awarded. The first is that the accepted proposals are reviewed by instrument scientists here at Space Telescope. And so they generally check the way that the observations are implemented to make sure that the science that's been proposed can actually be accomplished with the observations. Sometimes you can imagine that there is little bits of optimization that can be done to make the observations more effective or more efficient. And the instrument scientists do work with the observers to make those improvements. So what typically happens with either Hubble Space Telescope or James Webb Space Telescope is the construction of a year-long observing plan for the telescope. It's kind of approximate, but essentially the schedulers create what's called a long-range plan, and they look at all of the targets that have been accepted. They have different availabilities on the sky for different times of year. And so they try to build this year-long schedule. You can imagine for example, that there are some areas of the sky that are extremely popular. Like right now it's December and some of the deep field areas are visible. So this is areas where there's not a lot of foreground galaxies. So people are able to look out at the distant universe. And so these are very popular areas of the sky to look at, to peer back to a fraction of the age of the universe. And so there are areas of the sky that may be extremely popular. And so you may end up with more observations than uh, you can accommodate. But in general, the schedulers have this uh, very challenging problem of trying to sort of like a Tetris game or something, figure <laughs> out where all the pieces go together so that all of the observations can be accomplished in a year. So basically there is the construction first. First, there's the instrument scientist reviews. Then there's the construction of the long range plan. And then a Essentially, what happens is in finer granularity, there are what are called short-term schedules. These are basically weekly schedules that get uploaded to the telescope. So, you know, if you were thinking about observations that were to be executed in a week and a half or two weeks or something like that, there's another part of the scheduling team that focuses on building a weekly schedule, and they will start pulling things from the long-range plan that are appropriate to put into the weekly schedule to be uploaded to the telescope. So the kind of cool thing is that the LRP, the long-range plan, and the short-term schedules are all available online. So you can even look online at the Space Telescope website and see what's being executed on the telescope this week. So that's one part of it. Um, the second part is you asked about grant funding. So uh, JBST is a NASA asset. Um, it's, it's actually an international partnership with ESA and CSA. But U.S.-based investigators have the opportunity to win grant funding to support the analysis of their JWST data. And so they can submit budgets once they hear that their proposals are successful, requesting most of the time it is labor for the data analysis, oftentimes also equipment, like if they need a computer equipment, for example, to reduce data and things like that, so that the observations are published in a timely way and help us figure out what to do next with the observatory as soon as possible. After the observations are taken, how do they get the data? 
the observatory has a like a solid state recorder on board and every anomaly was supposed to be every 12 hours there would be a contact with the ground through the deep space network the dsn to download that data to the science and operations center which is here in baltimore space telescope and so the data comes here and we have an archive where all the data is put a lot of the data, particularly the general observer programs, have a 12-month exclusive access period. So if you are the PI who wrote the proposal, only you and your team can access the data, usually for about 12 months. And so you have to log into your account so you can access the data in the archive. There are, however, a number of large programs. These are programs that are over 75 hours that waive their exclusive access periods because really the data benefits the entire astronomical community. And in those cases, the data can be downloaded right away. And anyone can actually go and have a look at the data and try to draw their own conclusions about what they see. With that prologue about JWST and how scientists propose for and use it, let's look at some of the projects that were in the first year, the cycle one of JWST's life. Dr. Ryan Lau, an assistant astronomer at the Noir Lab in Tucson, Arizona, is leading a JWST project titled Establishing Extreme Dynamic Range with JWST, Decoding Smoke Signals in the Glare of a Wolf-Rayet Binary. Well, perhaps first we should decode that title, which talks about Wolf-Rayet stars. I asked Dr. Lau to explain, what is a Wolf-Rayet star? A Wolf-Rayet star is the descendant of some of the most massive stars that form. These come from stars that are over uh, like 25 times the mass of our sun. Uh, so these stars live very short lives. These are like O type stars. Uh, and then they enter this Wolf-Ray phase towards the end of their lives when they've run out of hydrogen in their core, when they're, when they're burning hydrogen in their core. Yeah, and these Wolf-Ray stars are kind of some of the most extreme stars in the universe. They are very hot. They're over like 50,000 degrees Kelvin, over 10 times like hotter than the sun. They're very luminous, um, up to like a million times more luminous than the sun. So these are very extreme dying stars. What was the project you proposed? The project that we proposed with JWST is to try to spatially resolve dust shells around these Wolf-Ray stars. And so that's utilizing the angular resolution that we get with having this 6.5 meter telescope in space. And so not just spatially resolve this circumstellar dust, but also to get really deep sensitive spectroscopy of that dust to try to understand the chemistry and what exactly this dust is composed of. And so the reason why that we wanted to do this, why specifically we're looking at Wolf-Ray stars, is that these could be these potential dust factories in the early and local universe. So these could be providing some of the first sources of presumably carbon-rich dust that kind of goes on to form 
stars and future generations of stars and planets. We had two targets, actually, one of which is WRN40. And then we have also observations of another wolf ray star called WR137. And we haven't released those results yet or published those results yet. I'll encourage our listeners to go Google WR140 images because these are really beautiful. You just see this structure of these gas shells look like that are ringing out from the star. It's really gorgeous. Yeah. And you might also want to put like maybe star or JWST, because I've done that, like just looking up WR140 images, and I'm pretty sure you get like pictures of lawnmowers or <laughs> something like that. So that's something, something to keep in mind. Okay. Uh, we'll try not to confuse the two. Did Dr. Lau feel that the data from JWST met his expectations? Yeah. I mean, you'll probably get this a lot, but things went better than expected so much so that we were confused by our images because we didn't know exactly what we were seeing at first, but then it kind of came more into focus and we realized what we were observing, that we're detecting these series of concentric dust shells around WR140 that gave us this look at dust production over the past 130 years from this system. So it's yeah, it has exceeded expectations we published the results in Nature Astronomy, and um, yeah, we came up with these pretty re- remarkable images and observations of this system. So it has definitely yeah, exceeded expectations. Thanks again to Dr. Ryan Lau, Dr. Christine Chen, and Dr. Naomi Rogurney for joining us on the show. Stay tuned to How on Earth for an upcoming episode next month to hear about more projects using the James Webb Space Telescope. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Graham Goldman and Brian May. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.